Today's scripture reading, it comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And today's sermon title is The Advent of Belonging. Again, today's scripture reading, it comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And the sermon title is The Advent of Belonging. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be with you all today on this first Sunday in Advent. I need to apologize again for my voice, but also give God a great deal of thanks. This is the strongest it's been all week. Um, I had asked God last Sunday if I could just have two and a half hours. That's all I really wanted. That's what I got. And then I was just flat out uh, flu for the rest of the week. Not COVID. Family has tested twice. Um, we're all learning how to be sick again. I heard a couple coughs earlier today. I thought, okay, we're, 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 we're learning how to do this together again. So. Family is well, um, masking just to, to be careful, but very glad to be with you. I, I really do understand how hard it is to listen to this. Um, it, it, last week I was described as nasally, this week it's more breathy, so hope that helps. Advent. Advent is a name that we give to these four weeks before Christmas Day, where the church does two things. We remember the past and we look forward to the future. We remember what it was like for God's people to look forward to the Messiah, to think about why they needed a, a savior, to consider what he would be like, to wonder why it was taking so long for him to get here. We look back, we remember what it was like for them to wait for Jesus when he came the first time, and we allow their experience to shape how we then wait for him to come the second time. And so we take time each year to recall what their waiting was like, and we identify with them in their waiting. They're our ancient brothers and sisters in the family of God, and we let them teach us how we need to live in our waiting. Now, how do you do that as a modern person in a super busy season where the larger world is just demanding your attention constantly? I get asked that question fairly regularly, and my answer is always, find something that redirects your focus every single day back to Christ so that you're looking at him every day. And to help with that, that's what the Advent devotional is for. You can find them on the back table uh, when you came in, they're on the welcome table, or you can get a, 
an online copy if you'd like, if you'd prefer that. Just go to our website, www.renewalmainline.org, and then if you click on the announcement tab, you'll see them listed there, and you can get the devotional there. Each day has different readings. They're short. They focus on some aspect of who Jesus is, and there are four questions in the beginning of the booklet to help you process those different readings. Now, you can do this, obviously, on your own. You'll benefit a whole lot more if you do it in community, if you do it with other people. And so if you have roommates, maybe you can take for the next month a time and just schedule time together where you read this together and talk briefly. If you live on your own, maybe you want to reach out to someone and say, hey, can we get coffee once a week for the next four weeks so that we can come together and, and share? This is what the Lord's showing me. This is what the Lord's showing you. Or maybe for December, you just want to find someone and say, could, could we email each day? Just one sentence. This is what God had to say to me through that reading. Just some way that you're doing this in community. What will this look like for the Smith household? Dinner is usually the time for us when everybody comes together. And so we'll take, what, 15 minutes after dinner, whoever's there, read the passage together, think through it together. Now, having done this a number of years, I, I already know that we are not going to hit every night, okay? And it, we're not going to be perfect. And the Smith family has gotten fairly comfortable not being perfect. And so we're just going to say, let's start. Um, because diving in, getting started, is much better than saying, well, because we're not going to be perfect, we're not going to start at all. So I want to invite all of us to join together as a church so that we are working to keep our focus on Christ over this next month. Advent, this period of waiting, leads us to what? It leads us to Christmas. And because of how much emphasis Christmas gets in our culture, both in the church and out of the church, it comes with more energy and it comes with more intensity than most other seasons and most other days of the rest of the year. And that intensity then does what? It drives expectations and more expectations than that you have of other days throughout the year. And those expectations are all over the map. And so for some of us, this time is what? It, it, it's just hugely sentimental. It makes us feel good. Some of us look back to happy childhood moments, or, or we just love the decorations and the lights and the parties, and we dive all in. And so at this time of the year, we're looking for things that are familiar, things that are warm, things that are comforting. Others of us have had very different experiences. We come from broken homes. And so each Christmas, with its emphasis on family and traditions, that feels like one more reminder of what we don't have, what we didn't have, and it feels like that reminder comes with an exclamation mark. Others of us have families that were still together, but they were really dysfunctional. And so the dysfunctions came out the more that we got together and the longer that we were together. And so our family gatherings look nothing like the seasonal videos, look nothing like the seasonal advertisements full of happy, smiling people enjoying themselves, and yet there's that longing inside. We, we really wanted them to. Or again, for some of us, a Christmas celebration wasn't dark. It just wasn't. For some of us, our parents were not born here. Christmas celebrating, that wasn't part of their world, and so this was just another time to work, maybe even to work more than the rest of the year, a time where there were no presents given, or 
a time that presents were expected from us that needed to match parents' expectations of what a good son or daughter would give. And so, yeah, it was a time off from school, a time when you were very aware that, that other people were having a very different experience. They couldn't begin to understand yours. And so for some of us, Christmas is not sentimental as much as it's complicated, even conflicted. Leads us to either want nothing to do with it, just hurry up and get through it, or, or to still hope that somehow, some way, this year is, there's going to be something there that will fill up that empty hole inside. We all have these different expectations that we bring to this time of year. We also have expectations from what we've experienced in the church. I was talking to a college student a couple weeks back. He said something like, yeah, I, I know it's helpful to be reminded each year that Jesus came to earth, but we read the same passages every year, and I feel like there's nothing new here for me to learn. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that I have expectations of this year. I have expectations that it's going to be familiar, comfortable, but also kind of empty, like there's going to be a form without any real substance. Or I can think about another friend of mine. She was writing a blog for a missions agency, wanted to run a couple ideas past me. And one of the things that I said back to her was that she needed to make sure that she said something about the cross, that she related Jesus' birth to his death since his whole life was oriented to the cross. She said, oh, I've tended to separate them, to make Christmas about his birth and Easter about his death and resurrection. In other words, she's used to talking about the what, the fact that he came, without talking about the why, the reason that he came. Now, I don't think any of my friends are unusual, but I do think that if we, Renewal, are going to enter into this season with all of its expectations, if we're going to enter into it as Christians, we're going to have to keep very clear the why, the reason that Jesus came to earth. And if we don't, we're going to get swallowed up by the sentimentality, the complexity, the familiarity of it all. Now, the why is actually pretty easy on one level. The angel who tells Joseph to go ahead and marry Mary tells him that the child that she's carrying is going to save his people from their sins. Later, when Jesus is born, the angels announce to the shepherds that a Savior has been born to them. It's the same thing that Simeon declares in the temple when he sees Jesus as an eight-year-old child, that he has now seen God's salvation. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's why he was born. Somehow, we have to keep seeing that part behind all the sentimentality, behind all of the complexity and the familiarity that is so much more in our face. That part is obvious. What's not so obvious, at least in our modern age that does not use the word sin in any meaningful way, what's not so obvious is what does that mean? I was listening to a sermon the other day. The pastor constantly referred to Jesus saving us from our sins over and over and over and over again without once connecting the word saved to the lived experience of the people who were listening. It was a very orthodox sermon and very generic. 
That kind of message in our heads will not help you watch a commercial with a car and a bow on top of it. It's not going to help you go to the office Christmas party. It's not going to help you parent and shepherd your children through this season that's trying to teach them to put all of their trust in a purely material world, one that will just give them stuff and fill them up with stuff that will be everything that they need. So this Christmas season, I want to help orient our expectations around Christ more than around anything else so that whether it's your best Christmas ever or your worst, you're going to come away thrilled because in the middle of the worst or the best, you got told of something way better. You got Christ. And I want to do that in a way that then ties into daily life. And so for Advent, we're going to tease apart the fourth chapter of John. Because as you watch Jesus interact with this woman at the well in Samaria, you're going to hear four things that she relies on. We'll take one each week. Four things that she trusts in to make her life work. But they are four things that don't work or aren't going to work for her. And so these are four things that she needs to be saved from. And you're going to hear each week Jesus gently address each one, effectively say that it's not enough, and then he's going to offer her an alternative that's far better than anything she's tried yet. It's a passage that shows us on the ground what Jesus came to save you and me from. It shows us why he came, the reason that he came. It gives us a sense then of what we should expect from him in our lives now that he's been born. So yeah, it, it, it's kind of an odd Christmas passage, but maybe one that will help reorient all of us, regardless of where we are this morning. So for today, we're going to look at one of these three things in these ten verses. And we're going to look at it from three directions. First, we're going to look at this thing that this woman has been trusting in. Second, we're going to look at what she needs instead. And then third, look at how she can go about getting it. Very simple today. What is it that she trusts in? What is it she really needs? And how do you get it? She doesn't use many words in this opening exchange with Jesus. But the ones that she does tells us an awful lot about her. Jesus is tired out from his journey. He's going from the southern part of Israel to the northern part. And to get from the south to the north, you have to go through this area of Samaria in the middle. It's about the middle part of the day. He sits down at a well, sends the disciples off to the nearby village to get something to eat. And this lone individual woman comes out to get some water for her household. Jesus asks her for a drink. And she doesn't give a simple yes or no. Instead, verse 9, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria. How is it? Why are you asking? Why are you asking me? That's not a question you should be asking. It's not really appropriate for you to ask me for water. Why are you doing that? She's asking out of her consciousness that there is something socially inappropriate here, that there are multiple socially constructed identities, ones that she has, ones that he has, that separate him and her from each other. They are identities that constrain what each person can and cannot do and that dictate what each person can and cannot expect from each other, 
identities that then serve to put distance between them. She's highly aware of these identities and highly aware that what he is doing does not fit into the world as she knows it. How is it that you ask for me? Now, what are these identities? First, she says she's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. You think, so what? <laughs> What's the big deal here? Well, at one point, this area of Israel uh, was part of Israel. But in the early 700s BC, the Assyrian nation invaded and took over northern Israel. And when the Assyrians defeated a nation, they had a policy of relocating people. And so they took people from their historic homeland and they put other people into that area and they intermingled them all. And that strategy then served to break up any national alliances that people had. It kept rebellions from forming that they would later have to come in and put down. That's what 2 Kings chapter 17 tells us happened in this area. The Assyrians brought in five different people groups into the area of Samaria. And these people groups intermarried, they blended with each other. And now that they lived in Israel, they thought that they needed to learn how to worship the God of this land. Gods were thought to be a geographic at that time. And so they started to adopt worshiping the one true, kind, one true God, kind of. They did worship him, but they also mixed in some of their own pagan religions initially. Then they started adding in their own ideas. For instance, they didn't embrace all of Scripture, but only the first five books of Moses. They chose a different place to worship rather than in Jerusalem. And so for a variety of reasons, the Jews just despised these people. Mixed race, pagan ancestry, not worshiping the way that God had told them to. From a Jewish perspective, the Samaritans were essentially Gentiles. So if you came in contact with them, you would what? You'd be defiled. Their corruption would rub off on you. The best way then to avoid being defiled was what? Just not deal with them. And so strict Jews worked hard to avoid anything that, they, that had them coming into contact with the Samaritans. Many of them even refused to go through this area, and they would take a very long, circuitous route around the area of Samaria. Just avoid them altogether. They treated the Samaritans with contempt, and the Samaritans knew it. What Jesus just asked for, then, doesn't make any sense to the woman. For her to give him a drink, he'll have to use her pitcher, something that she has touched, which to the Jewish mind, then, her defilement is going to defile him. That's one identity marker that separates her from him. It's a barrier that keeps them from each other. You realize they're not thinking of it as a racial difference, but a racial divide. And it's a divide that controls so much of daily social intercourse that this woman calls Jesus out for trying to cross it. But Jesus doesn't blow simply past this socially constructed way of keeping races separate. He also crosses chauvinist constructions. Notice that the woman here doesn't only highlight the ethnic divide in her response, but she also draws attention to the gender divide. She doesn't refer to herself simply as a Samaritan, but as a Samaritan woman. It's not an accident on her part. It was also part of the social construction of reality. When the disciples come back, you learn later in verse 27 that they marveled 
that he was talking with a woman. They're surprised, astonished that he would do such a thing, both because he's a man and because he's a rabbi. Leon Morris wrote a commentary, and in that commentary he cites a quotation from that time period just to give you a sense of the societal expectations. He writes, this is the quote, a man shall not, this is a quote from that time, sorry. A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. That was the social expectations, the social norms of that time. And it was shocking to those norms and expectations that Jesus would be alone with this woman. It was way beyond shocking that he would talk with her. So shocking, the woman just can't let this go unnoticed. How is it that you ask me, a Samaritan woman? This kind of thing just isn't done. So there's the racial divide, there's the gender divide, and there's a third divide. She knew who she was from a Jewish perspective, but she also knew who she was from a Samaritan perspective. Remember what time it is? Our passage says it was the sixth hour. That's about noon. That small details you, detail tells you that there's something odd here. If you read through the Scripture, you start to learn that there's something wrong with this picture. For instance, other passages teach you that women tended to go to the well of their town in groups. And they tended to do that when the sun wasn't high up in the sky beating down on them. So put that together with what you've just learned from John 4. Here's a solitary woman, all by herself, coming to get water from a well that's outside of town. It's about half a mile away. And she's coming toward during a time of day where it's a pretty safe bet that nobody else is going to be around. And you realize here's a woman who holds identities that end up keeping her isolated from everyone else. She's always on the outside, always weighted negatively. Her Samaritan identity keeps her out of Jewish society. Her female identity keeps her out of male society. And her moral identity, we learn later in the chapter that she's been married five times, now living with someone else. Her moral identity, we'll talk about this more in a few weeks, her moral identity keeps her out of Samaritan society. She's a social outcast. And what's really weird from a modern Western viewpoint, she not only knows where she doesn't belong, but she accepts that place. Jesus asks her for a drink, and she doesn't think to herself, oh, wow, here's someone who's different. Someone who doesn't look at me through the categories that society has taught us to think of through. Someone who's willing to cross them to get me, to me. Of course you can have a drink. She doesn't think like that. And she doesn't start questioning the categories. She doesn't say to herself, hey, wow, this, this makes me uncomfortable, but why should it? Why should these artificial lines create divisions between people that keep us from one another? She doesn't embrace his approach, and she doesn't question the categories. Instead, what does she question? She questions him. How is it that you... What's going on here? Why are you doing that? 
She knows how her society defines her. And to a certain extent, she has embraced that definition. She comes to the well alone, accepts how the town defines her. When Jesus surprises her, she immediately falls back on what's familiar. She highlights the social divides, puts them front and center. She's a woman who knows her place in society, and she reinforces it. Now, if you think about what that means, you realize there's got to be a backstory there. One where you want to ask things like, how did she learn what her place is? How long ago did she learn that? Who, who put her there? How did they do it? Who is harsh with her, dismissive, condescending? She's keeping herself there now, but she was not born into the world believing that she was supposed to anchor the lowest rung available on the social ladder. Female, Samaritan, outcast. And so you wonder, I wonder, what happened to her? Were there turning points in her life that got her there? What were they? Which choices did she make? Why did those seem like the best option to her at that time? How did she get here? See, it's one thing if somebody wants to tell you, this is your place, stay in it. It's another thing for you to agree with them. It's another thing for you to do your best to stay there. Why would you do that? I mean, it's pretty easy to understand why someone would try to do that to you, why they would categorize you. Most of the time when we create stereotypes and social barriers, it's to protect the privileges that we have. It's to control people who might try to change our way of life. It's to make it easy for our people to identify them so we can get all the troops worked up so that they'll go combat the threat that we've taught them to see. In other words, you try to put people in their place out of your own insecurities, your greediness, your lust for power, which all happens when, what, when, when you let go of your identity as an image of God. As someone who is connected not only to God but to the rest of his images. When you lose that identity, you're no longer thinking about other human beings as equals. And so then when that happens, you don't have to think about what's in their best interests. Instead, you can reduce them down to a utilitarian function. Either they're a means to an end, they're a way to help you get what you want, or they're an obstruction who's in the way of getting what you want. See, when you start to take sin into account, it makes sense why you would want to label someone else to create social divisions that get you what you want. But why would you do that to yourself? A lot of reasons, right? It's certainly easier than bucking the system. It's easier, and it's safer. When you try to break social barriers, you run the risk of being looked at funny, mis being misunderstood, being harassed, even more ostracized, maybe even physically hurt. Many have been killed. Maybe the strongest reason, however, is also the saddest. It's that you don't think you can afford the cost of hoping for more than you think other people will let you have. See, if you hope for a world that reflects God and his character, your heart is going to break 
when you come up against the ugliness of this world. And sometimes people would rather just not hope. Came across one of these quotes on the internet that, that sums up what I'm trying to say. It said, sometimes you need to know your place in someone's life because you might get hurt if you expect too much. Sometimes you need to know your place in someone's life because you might get hurt if you expect too much. What are they saying? Know your place and stay in it because it might hurt too much if you don't. If you want too much, you're going to get hurt. And so then what the, the, the advice, the best advice that the world has to offer us is don't hope for too much. Push that desire down. Don't let that flourish inside of you. Don't desire and you can't get hurt. Kind of get that sense from this woman. She trusts in the ways that she's been thought to think about herself and others. She might not like the stereotypes, but if she stays within them, she'll be safe. She might not be thrilled with the life they offer, but at least she can live. So when Jesus crosses the boundary lines, she falls back on them, highlights them. And yet the sad news is that these social boundaries that she is working so hard to embrace, so hard to reinforce, they're not working for her. They're not saving her from a broken world. She trusts them to navigate life. They are the automatic interpretive grid through which she looks at all the rest of life. She sees life through, these, through the lens of Jew, Samaritan, male, female, respectable, shameful. It's what she falls back on to figure out how to live life. But there's not a single person in this room who would trade places with her and want her life. She's isolated, ostracized. She's cut off from others, and she cuts herself off from others. What she is trusting in does not work for her. This reliance on socially constructed identities is making her more and more alone the longer that she leans on it. That's point one, what she's been trusting in. Point two, thankfully Jesus has what she really needs. I want you to notice first here what he does not offer her. He doesn't offer her theological reasons. He will later, but he doesn't do that at this point. And so he doesn't look at the social divides and target them as the problem for what's ruining her life. Doesn't sit her down and say, look, <laughs> you're seeing this all wrong. We have to reprogram the way that you think about culture and society. Let's start with racial divides. When God created human beings, he created one humanity with glorious diversity. He didn't create the various ethnicities so they would be at odds with each other trying to prove which one is better. All ethnicities are what? They're, they're more detailed, diverse aspects of this one great image of God that humanity is. Jesus doesn't say that. He could have, but he didn't. He also doesn't say, let me help you understand something about gender and equality. When God made human beings, he made them all equally in his, in his image. He made them all male and female. And so you can't have the full picture of the image of God without both. And therefore you have to value and you have to cherish both. And you have to value and cherish 
what he made you to be. Jesus doesn't say that either. He has no problem crossing the brokenness of how she's constructing identities. But he doesn't see the brokenness of her societal constructions as the primary problem that she has. He's not threatened by her society's identity categories. And he doesn't immediately start trying to dismantle them. He doesn't stay within the lines that her culture has drawn for him, the lines that try, try to rewrite the identities that God gave. And he doesn't call her to abandon her culture and her cultural way of understanding life. Why not? It's because she has a deeper underlying problem that she doesn't yet understand. It's a problem that needs a different solution. How do you know that? Because if she understood that, it would lead her to ask a different question than the one that she asked. That's what Jesus does say, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She knows what her society offers but she doesn't know what God offers. She knows who people are in her culture. She can label both them and herself, but she doesn't know who Jesus is. And because she doesn't know, she doesn't ask the right question, the one that would lead her to getting what she really needs, real community, real belonging. And so Jesus effectively says to her, you're an expert in understanding your culture and in understanding how to belong in your culture. But all of those dividing lines that you're so good at delineating, they simply serve to cut you off from other people. Can I offer you an alternative? If you knew who's saying this to you, you would have asked me for what you need. You would have come to me. You would not stiff-arm me with your questions. You'd move toward me. You would belong with me. He didn't call her to adopt a whole new framework of how she interprets and processes the world. He called her to himself and to the gift that he would give her. Living water, life inside of her, so that if nothing ever changed in her society, if everyone kept seeing her the same way, she would have this gift from God that would satisfy her deepest thirsts, thirsts and her deepest longings. And the way he sees her would matter more to her than how anyone else sees her. That's what he called her to, to himself and to what he has to offer. Now, by coming to him, will she need to adjust the way she thinks about the world? Of course she will. God thinks about race and gender in ways that she does not. That means she can't remain a traditionalist, just hanging on to, parroting whatever her society promotes. And she can't become a total revolutionary, just redefine all the social categories, the identities in whichever way she feels is best. Instead, she's going to need to embrace the way God creates identities for human beings and societies. In that way, God does have a place, place for her. 
like he has a place for you and me. It's not that there is no place, no identity for you, just make one up. It's that he is the one who, identify, who defines your identity. He defines it because he alone truly knows you. He made you the way you are. He knows then how you're going to best fit into the larger world that he's made. But you will never find that place and you will never be happy with it until you first find him and you find him deeply satisfying until he's that source of life inside of you. And so you're only willing to embrace what he has to say about you and how you fit into the world. You're only willing to embrace the identity that he has for you after you know what it's like to be embraced by him. It's something then, the, his, his place for you is something that you're willing to try after you trust him. After you see, have seen that he's not going to hurt you. But that's only after you realize that he's only ever going to do what's best for you. It's a really important order there. First, you come to God. You discover who he is and you discover what he's like. You discover how rich he is, how good he is to give this gift to you. And then second, you adopt his ways of thinking. You adopt the identities that he has for you, not the other way around. And that's the same order that our modern society needs to hear as well. Not... Here is what you have to think about the world in order to come to God. You have to think this way about men and women, this way about sex and sexuality, this way about justice, this way about stewarding the plant, and you have to think about all of those things in God's way before you come to God. It's not what you see Jesus doing here. People do need to be challenged that they and God think differently. But those differences don't get sorted out before you come to him, but after because God's thoughts only make sense once you know him, once you've learned to trust him. That means, like Jesus, you and I need to lead with, if you knew. If you only knew how amazing he is, how good he is, what it's like to know him, then you too would come to him and you would ask him for what he offers. Anybody seen the Joe Montana Guinness commercial this year where he talks about why he played football for so long? Anybody? Four. Okay, good. <clears throat> Montana is a Hall of Fame quarterback who finally retired when he was about 38 years old. I had a lot of people asking why he didn't quit earlier. In the commercial, he touches on that when he says this, quote, everybody's going well, how come he's playing so long? Why do you guys try to play forever? And the game is so fun. I wish everybody could play on a Sunday afternoon one time. Win or lose, the excitement, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, the adrenaline rushes, you can't find anything to even come close to that, unquote. What did he just say? He said, if you only knew, if you knew how amazing this game is, you would know why I stayed in this long. And you think about it, you realize there's an awful lot of things that he could have said about what it took to stay in the NFL, 
that long. He had to be committed to the game. He had to be disciplined. He had to be hardworking. He had to put in countless hours of study, hours of practice. He had to be willing to suffer an awful lot. All that is true, and he doesn't reference a single bit of it. At the end of the day, what is it that stands out to him most about football? It's man. This game is so fun. It's so amazing. How could you not want to play if you only knew? That's the message that the world needs to hear from you and me. How amazing Jesus is. How good life is with him, regardless of how it's going. Win or lose, the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. How you wish everybody could know him because you can't find anything to even come close to that. That's how Jesus started with this woman. That's what she needed to hear from him. It's what the people around you need to hear from you during this season. But they won't hear that unless that's what your life is like with Jesus. Which leads us to our last point very briefly. How do you get it? How do you come to know who it is who's saying this to you? How do you realize how amazing he is? It's going to seem really obvious, but you look at what he's doing because that tells you what he's like. And when you do that, you realize that this woman has already seen enough to know that he is better than anything she's ever experienced. And so it's amazing that he would even be there in Samaria. It's more amazing that he would talk to her. It's incredibly amazing that he would ask for anything from her, and it's beyond amazing that he would take something from her and accept it from her, that he'd use her jar. She is on the outside of every social grouping. She's a complete outcast. And what does she learn about Jesus and the way that he treats outcasts? She learns that he moves toward them, not away from them. That's amazing. Never met anybody like that. She needs to belong. She doesn't belong. And he comes to her so that she can belong with him. So that her place in this world is not cut off from everyone else. But so that her place is with him. This Jesus will cross any boundary, any barrier to get to you with an offer that's too good to miss out on so that you can be with him. Does that mean you're going to end up having to change your views on some things? Cross some boundary lines that maybe you've previously drawn? Erase some lines that you really kind of like? Change your views on gender, on what it means to be male and female, and where that fits into his world? Your views on race and ethnicity, on sexuality, on conservatism and progressivism. We have to change your views to cross over to where he is. Probably, but you won't have to cross more boundaries once you're with him than he had to cross to get to you. He crossed the infinite chasm that you and I created between his holiness and our unholiness. 
a chasm created by us thinking that we could give ourselves better identities than the ones that he created for us. It's a chasm, a boundary that is not socially constructed, but one that is objectively real, one that we can't redefine, one that we can't cross, but one that he could cross and did. His trip to this Samaritan woman was just a microcosm of his larger life. It's a small glimpse of the larger journey that he took to come to us, of him leaving heaven, another objective reality, to come to earth, of him bridging the uncrossable gulf between divinity and humanity by becoming a body so that he could die on the cross. Dying the death, you should have died despite having lived the life you should have lived. He obeyed the Father completely, even though it cost him his life to do so. Jesus asked the Father in the Garden of Eden that if possible, this cup, the wrath of God that he would experience on the cross, that if possible, this cup would be taken from him. But he said, if it's not possible, may your will be done. What did he just say? He just said, I accept the place you've given me. I know my place, and I accept it. He embraced that place, that identity, because he knew the love of the Father. And he trusted the Father with his life. You could trust him with your life, too. You're not going to hate the place that he has for you. The gift of God may not be what you expect. It may alter some of the things that you've trusted in to make sense of your world, but you're not going to hate the place that he has for you. Because ultimately, that place is with him. Jesus did everything he had to to cross any boundary that there was to get to you. The love that drove him to come to you will satisfy you. That's why he came to this earth 2,000 years ago as our Savior. That's what it means for him to save you and me now. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to save us from our sins. Thank you that you did not come to merely redefine the ways that we think differently from you, but that you came to rescue us from loving those definitions, to rescue us from our own thoughts and our own ideas, to give us the hope of just, just an amazing life where we would belong, if we belong with no one else, that we would belong with you. And Lord, it's amazing. you. you allow us to enter into your family, and we realize it's not just with you, but we belong now with every brother and sister that you've brought in as well. Thank you for this amazing salvation that you came to this earth to bring us. In Jesus' name.